Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this church and this body of believers, God. We thank you just for the community and how you, you just continue to use this church to draw people in, Lord. I just pray that you would continue to use uh, this building and just this group of people for your purposes, God, to grow your kingdom. Just pray that as we move into our service, Lord, that you just help us to anchor ourselves on you and you, Lord, and in your love. And um, may we just take away whatever it is that uh, that you want us to hear today, Lord. In your name, Amen. Okay, so we started last week, uh, and we're going through this lesson that we talked about. Um, uh, that's about family, and the whole idea of you know something we put on the chalkboard as you're walking in. I'm sure everybody paid attention to. Huh, someone's calling the church. Interesting. Um, something that uh, you know I'd put on the chalkboard as you know coming in is. Uh, something that basically says, like, uh, you know, if you're looking for just kind of like a, like a plain old church, you're probably going to be disappointed. Um, but uh, if you're looking for a place that is going to treat you like a family, then here's a place that's going to be like a family. And uh, that's something that I think that in, you know, even though in all churches, like, people do nice things for each other, it is nice being able to have a place where you could be super comfortable. And I think that one of the reasons why, even though you can have a very formal church that is very personable, I think that it is hard to have a non-personable church or, you know, that uh, is also informal. Because uh, it's, it's something that is almost kind of built into the fabric of when you do home church, when we sit here and we kind of like share what God's doing in our lives and we, we joke and stuff like that, that you know, there, there's some kind of sense of connection in there. If the whole time you're sitting here uh, looking at the person right beside you or looking at, um, I was going to say Shelby or me, but who could hate Shelby? Like, but you're looking at me, you know, and sitting here saying, like, I have really terrible feelings. Like, man, that'd be a really awful Sunday uh, because, again, it's such like a tight-knit little group or the same thing at the home church. If somebody's looking at, like, Ryan and Char and going, oh, I just can't stand them. Like, you're in their home. So there's something to, I feel like, this sense of connection that you end up having that um, makes the church experience um, I don't know. It, it seems like it makes it stick with you a little bit more. At least, you know, that's kind of how, how I felt with a lot of these, uh, you know, connections you have. Um, and so one of the things I really wanted to dig into over the Sundays, you know, kind of going in between last week leading up to Easter is what it means to be a part of this family. Because we have to understand that Jesus didn't come to this earth just so he could go and create another religion. I mean, rest assured, there were tons of awesome religions. Uh, when I say awesome, I just mean like, you know, for what it is, you go in, cool, mega, massive temples and, and, you know, big rituals and things like that. It's actually a funny thing that if you go back and if you were to ask yourself the question and say, at what point in time did the church go from what we read uh, in a lot of the New Testament, where it's very much like meeting in homes and small groups and stuff like that, when did it go from that to being this thing with like bishops and cathedrals and, and pomp and circumstance and all this kind of stuff, ironically, it's when Rome became Christianized. What happened is in order to get all the pagans on board who had their temples and their idols and their, their, their Pontifex Maximus and all this kind of stuff, what they did is they kept all that stuff and they just themed it Jesus-y. And so what you ended up with is you ended up with eventually what we call church today. So it's kind of funny that you look at so many of the things that people associate with like religion and in reality it's like, hey man, we're all like really tied to these like pagan celebrations and stuff, uh, you know, and, and you can see that in how we experience Christianity. Now, 
That being said, important to note that that doesn't mean that people who enjoy the old-fashioned way of doing things, that uh, it's inherently wrong. People can have very legitimate spiritual experiences in all kinds of ways. This is one of the things that I know I'll make comments about, like Joel Olstein, and you know I'll make comments about megachurches and stuff. Look, when I was a teenager, I, I, don't, I don't know if you call it a megachurch, but it was a large church. It's like an 800-person church. And we, um, you know, it, it's easy to be cynical about those things. But, hey, people are having legitimate spiritual experiences in there. So I kind of look at it and go, hey, can't, can't knock some of these people we like picking on, you know, too much because they're helping people, you know, come to Christ. But, uh, you know, God will work through anything that man creates. It doesn't mean that that thing man creates is inherently good. It also doesn't mean it's destined to endure. And I think that's the important thing for us as Christians to understand, is that just because we associate something as being old or something as being traditional doesn't mean it's destined to always be here. I one time heard a comedian make a comment about uh, people who get really tied into their traditions and their institutions, and he would say, yeah, if you can remember growing up with somebody who would tell stories about when something started, that's not a historical tradition, that's just old. And I was like, well, that's a pretty good point. Uh, you know, specifically talking about how a lot of things that we consider, um, you know, things that are just institutions that simply exist are things that can actually fall. In our country, you know, we're remarkably young in a lot of ways. So a lot of our, a lot of our institutions and our traditions are things that are also young as well. We, uh, you know, sometimes will just kind of assume that things that have always been will continue to always be and they won't fail. But the reality is that's not what we see. I was talking with uh, Krista Manns over this last week about a couple things, and <clears throat> one of the comments she made, she, she kind of jokingly asked me and said, is it sacrilegious to turn, uh, what'd she say, a church into, um, was it, oh, like a bed and breakfast? And I, I kind of laughed. I said, mm, it'd probably generally be frowned upon. Um, but, you know, what's funny is that kind of thing is exactly what you see happening in Europe where they take these churches that are just gorgeous churches. I mean, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal to see these teeny tiny little chapels that exist in places that don't seem like they're anywhere significant, and they're just absolutely beautiful. And so people don't want to tear them down, so what they do is they gut them, they turn them into restaurants, they turn them into hotels, they turn them into bed and breakfast. That's exactly what's happening in other places. And whenever I see those things, I can't help but look at, you know, the way that a lot of us look at our churches today and say, well, this has always been here. Uh, you know, we've been here for whatever, 100 years, for 300 years, for 200 years. Uh, you know, and you just kind of assume it's always going to be there. But the reality is that I wonder how many of these people that are there in these, you know, eight, seven, 600-year-old churches thought, well, this thing's never going to fail. It's always going to be here. We're Europe. We're, we're a Christian continent, of course. Of course this isn't going to go anywhere, but then there you go, it fell. Now, if there's one thing that's for sure, it's that our institutions aren't permanent. They will fall one day. It's something that we see and that many of us read in our study of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes 1.11. It says, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Now, it's funny because I know whenever we think about like people being forgotten in history and all that, we think about all these big names, right? We think about like, well, what about like Caesar and the Pharaohs and all that kind of stuff? And, um, uh, you know, it's remarkable how much we don't know about many of these people, how much has been forgotten and how much continues to be forgotten, even though we have more ability to document things. You realize there are actually Greek philosophers that we think of as like big individuals like Plato 
that people say, yeah, we don't actually know that this person really existed. So think about that. There are these people that we view as being pivotal to our society that people are like, yeah, we don't actually, we're not actually convinced that there was a person called Plato or that it might have actually been a few different people who got together or, you know, we don't, we don't really know. Even when it comes to authors of certain books in the Bible, we look at it and say, well, we don't actually know if that was literally the writings of John or if that was actually John and some of his disciples who, you know, because you can actually look at the way things are written and there's a few different voices in there, which would be very, very typical of, you know, multiple people coming together. And there's all these different things that we don't realize about history. I was looking, I'm going to go into one more thing about ancient history, so humor me. Uh, I was watching this one thing that was uh, talking about some of the first kings in Europe. And there is a, uh, an area that's kind of right where Turkey touches Europe and Bulgaria um, that's called Varna. And in there, there's a grave that is, uh, is from, dates for, to 4,500 B.C. If you're a young earther, I don't know what you want to do with that information. You can meditate on that on your own. But, uh, you know, 4,500 B.C. And in this grave... They found more gold than they have found in any other gravesite, like anywhere else in the ancient world, like even in years after that. So you end up looking at this and going, there's this individual, and because of all the rights and everything, they're like, clearly this is an individual who we today would call a king. But yet, none of us know anything about this guy. You know, we can tell things from context clues. We can tell how he was treated. It's kind of remarkable, really, with how little people can actually come up with certain, you know, uh, piece together a story. But we don't know hardly anything about this individual. When we get to, you know, 4,000 B.C., so we're really advancing in time at this point. Uh, you know, get to 4,000 B.C., then you have these areas that are called Sumer and Akkad that are in between the, uh, uh, in Mesopotamia, right? In between the two rivers over there in modern-day Iraq. And these areas are where we get so many, uh, you know, stories and so many ideas about the ancient world. A lot of people have actually said that there's influences, like literary influences between that and some of the things we see in, like, ancient Hebrew texts and whatnot. It's a very, very ancient area. And yet, how many individuals know anything about many of the people who existed in these great civilizations and great empires in Sumer and Akkad? Many people, I'm certain, that are, that are here, and I say this in like an like a arrogant way, just because, like, why would you study this? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people here kind of heard that and go like, mm, I don't know what a Sumer is, you know? And so, I mean, that, that's kind of my point, though, is that these are institutions that no doubt the people here had faith in. You can tell they had faith in it because they dedicated their whole lives to it. People who dedicated their entire careers to it. People who dedicated their entire sense of pride and all their possessions and belongings were all rolled up into these institutions, and yet they all fell apart. They all wasted away to the sands of time. And so I guess if there's one message here that I have for the Christian church today, it's that we have to be careful not to take for granted the things that we consider institutions of our faith. Because even though those institutions do not make up our faith, those institutions are ways that we do execute and practice our faith. And so there is a certain importance in the institution, not because of what it is, but because of what it allows us to be able to do. And if that's the case, then we have to be willing to look at our institution and say, okay, 
We can't take for granted much greater things than my church, than my nation, than my culture or whatever have come and gone to the sands of time. So I want to make certain that whatever I am investing in as an individual is in something that is actually meaningful and that serves a purpose. And I think this is one of the reasons why you don't see things in the New Testament, you know, in the Bible, talk about building up the temple and establishing our, our uh, uh, authorities and our leaders and things like that. When I look in the Bible, you know, it's something that I've, I've made, I've preached entire portions of sermons on before, that you almost see a complete 180 turning away from political things when you look at the Bible for the exception of when they took God's chosen people working through the instrument of a nation of Israel. As soon as you divorce that, all of a sudden you almost see everything in the Bible turning the exact opposite direction of even getting involved in government. So at that point in time, you end up seeing, so clearly there's not really a premium being placed in the Bible on trying to put into these physical institutions. Instead, we see a focus on treating one another as a family, as being united in the body of Christ, and that that is the thing that we should put our faith in. And so when we sit here and we think about what it means to be a part of a church, to be a part of a, a Christian, whatever, don't call it a church if that's a bad word, you know, call, uh, you know just part of a, a whatever, an enclave, a, co a collective, whatever kooky word you want to use, then you see that the focus is on the relationships that we have built with one another because it's those relationships we build with one another that are proxies for our relationship with Christ. That because we are all parts of the body of Christ, then when we form relationships with one another and we support and love one another, then we also support and love Christ because we are supporting his body. That's how all this works. And so where so many churches seem to get it wrong is they, they, they exist unto themselves. They exist for the purpose of perpetuating their group or their organization. This thing's always been here. It has to always exist. But the reality is, no, it absolutely does not. In an instant, God could go, I don't need this anymore, and go a different direction. What he cares about is your soul, not your building. So with that being said, what does it mean to be willing to support one another? Well, last week, that's exactly what we talked about. We talked about supporting one another and about being there for each other and, you know, trying to carry each other's burdens. Um, I talked about the, I kind of alluded to at the end of the, the service that uh, Lauren Cattington got a literal yoke for us that I could have used as a sermon metaphor, but I didn't, and it's in the corner, and I hope you give us both brownie points for that. Uh, but this week, what I wanted to talk about was not support, because we already covered that, but talk about what does it mean to serve one another. Now, when I talk about serving one another, it's important because of what I just mentioned, that whole introduction there, that we're not necessarily talking about serving on the Humpty Dump Committee. We're talking about serving one another. Sometimes that means serving in a corporate capacity. Sometimes that means serving on an individual capacity. Sometimes it means serving in a familiar capacity. But just keep that in mind as we go through all this. And especially as we talk about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, which is not exclusive to just the membership of your church roster. So as we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see this, you know, one, one of the examples of this kind of famous metaphor, talking about the body of Christ. Starting in verse 12, we can see that we belong to a body. In verse 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. 
Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. The diversity in the body of Christ is something that so often goes underappreciated or sometimes even becomes vilified. The idea that we do all have different ways of looking at things, that we have different ways of approaching common things. We have different ways of serving, and that's fine. And, you know, what we tend to do because we have that, like, Roman pagan, you know, everybody getting into the orthodoxy way of thinking about religion, is we tend to look at things and say, well, that person worships different than me, so that must not be authentic. Or that person wants a church different than me, so it must not be real. Or, you know, people who are trying to do something new look at the old-fashioned thing and go, that's old-fashioned, and that's not what I think, so they must not be having a real religious experience. And none of those things are true. We are a diverse body of individuals who see things differently, that speak differently, that have different backgrounds, that resonate with different things. And so the key as a church, both as an organizational church and also as just individuals, is how do we sit here and and grow ourselves and mature our own understanding so that if we are one body part, we can appreciate and even complement different body parts that exist. How can we work with one another? Not so that we look and say, well, that person sees it differently or maybe is a different place than me, you know, and so, uh, you know, I see it as inherently bad, but instead we see that as, you know, we have a lot of different things that we all have to bring to the table and we can bring it together for a common purpose. And that should be the thing that motivates us. That fact that we are all following the same Christ, the same conviction, and fundamentally at a certain level, the same calling. That's the thing that actually unites us together. But the big takeaway from the, those first couple of verses is that you absolutely belong to a thing. There's no such thing as an independent, free, radical Christian. It simply doesn't exist. When I hear somebody say, I can be a Christian and not be a part of a church, I look at that and I go, I, I, I think you have disdain for the, the organized whatever church. And like, look, everything I just introduced, I get it. I really get it. But at the same time, that statement is a fallacy, and there's no way you can possibly say that I love Christ, but I hate his body. That simply doesn't square. You have to have a desire to want to commune with other individuals that are a part of the body of Christ at some level, even if the people that you've been interacting with, you go, well, I just don't like them. Okay, that's fine. That's a whole different sermon, and we'll get to that later. But you need to want to be a part of the body of Christ, because if you're just a foot by itself, you're not going to do much. You're just going to sit there. You might flop around a little bit. I don't know what a, what a random foot does, but, um, but I watched the Wednesday series and I know what a hand does and crawls around. So, so anyway, you have to know that you're a part of this thing. And in doing that, you have to also understand that there is a sense of need, that we do need one another. If you continue on where we just were, 1 Corinthians 12 and move on to verse 15, we start reading this. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. This is exactly what we were just saying, almost with the same stupid metaphor, but it's less stupid when Paul says it. You're saying that a random body part can't do what the body is intended to do. I mean, think about it this way. Even when there is an individual who has suffered an injury or has some sort of malady about themselves or something like that, generally speaking, what do we do? 
you know, we tried to provide other things in that person's life to give them that functionality back, right? So if somebody, you know, goes off to war, I, we, we have an individual that walks around uh, one of the buildings I used to work at over at Dahlgren. And he, he lost his arm from here up, you know, being deployed. And so that being said, what did we do? Did we just kind of leave it? No, he has like a, a thing that assists him in still serving the purpose of what he wants to do. And so in the same way, it's important to understand that, you know, saying that, well, I'm really different and all that, while it might feel empowering and it might feel neat and everything, that's not really something that makes you useful. So feeling powerful and independent and all that doesn't equate being a healthy Christian with a good relationship with Christ. That means there's something that's really good in there. There's a place for strength and independence. But we need to also be willing to understand that I need to use my strength and my independence in order to somehow benefit the body. And in doing that, be a more effective tool for what Christ is calling me to do. That should be my desire. And the key to all of that is understanding that my life does not exist unto myself anymore. If I live unto myself, if I live for my own purposes, loving Christ from a distance, loving the idea of Christ, maybe even desiring to have a relationship with Christ, but not truly making that plunge, then it becomes easy to say, I'm going to do a lot of Jesus-y things, but I'm going to do it my way. Because that's what makes sense to me and I just don't think anybody else can do it or I think I have a better handle on it or whatever it is. The difference that happens when you truly hand your life over to Christ is looking at it and saying, I no longer exist unto myself. And so because of that, it means that whatever I want out of this relationship with Christ is irrelevant. What Christ wants with this relationship with Christ is all that matters. And as a part of that, I need to somehow find a way to use whatever it is, to use my traits, to you know, dovetail my weaknesses with, to, to use my, my skills, or whatever it is as a way to be an instrument for the role that God has called me to do. You can still be that strong person. You can still have all those characteristics, but you do it in a way that is complementary to the body. You are providing service to one another. As we continue on with the next couple of things, we can also see just reinforce that diversity aspect in verses 17 through 18. It says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wants them. I love this idea that everyone has a function. And maybe this is just like the engineer in my head that, that's doing this. But when I sit here and I think about a sense of diversity, I mean, to me, diversity for diversity's sake, I, I just, there, there's, there's things about that that I kind of look at and I go, eh. I mean, there needs to be something else to it. And fortunately, I think it's something where there's all kinds of reasons to be super, you know, awesome and, and, and on board with all kinds of diversity of, 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 of every facet of a person, of their background, of their being, of their identity, of, of everything. And getting these individuals and aligning them together for the purpose, the unified purpose of what Christ has called us to do. But you can see right here, Christ, at, you know, the, his design to actually have all of us be impugned with different abilities. 
And that's why I think that, you know, sometimes when we read this, we kind of look at it as one just bleh, talking about the body of Christ. But when we look at these different sections, we can see that we belong to the body of Christ in those first couple of verses. Then we can see that we have a need for each other in order for us to really be useful, to be able to do the thing God has called us to do. We do need one another. And then we can also see the fact that there is a sense of an appreciation that we should have in the function that everybody has to serve. So that when I see somebody who does do things different, I should be able to approach them and look at it from the perspective of they do something that's different than me. And you know what? That pushes me in a way that maybe I'm not capable or pushes me in a direction where maybe I'm weak. I sit there and I've, I've referenced it before and I'll reference it again that when we've had, you know, some of our like elders, you know, team meetings that, you know, uh, you know, we've had some of these conversations. What will happen is because of the people we have in the room, we'll have people who are very, like, traditional, right? Like, or the background's very traditional. And then we'll have people who are thinking very, very different and very new and all that. And there's a, a very strong tendency in kind of our very American Western way of thinking about church to say that, you know what, we're just not on the same page. And because of that, everything is doomed. When in reality, what we see right here is Paul almost saying to embrace those differences, to look at it and say, look at these different perspectives we have. And in doing that, if we can embrace this and find ways that we work with one another, then suddenly we start moving in a direction where we don't miss people. We don't, you know, pigeonhole ourselves into just one way of approaching things or doing things. I keep going back to that same phrase, something that popped up once again in the conversation I'd had with uh, Chris Demands earlier this week and uh, a conversation I've had with several individuals. When people say, like, there's tons of churches in Bowling Green. I can't, it's unbelievable how many churches there are in Bowling Green. And I'll look at it and say, yeah, absolutely. Isn't it crazy that there's this many churches and yet so many unchurched people? And why is that? I mean, it's an open question. Why? Why is it? Is it because, like, oh, well, you know, they just wouldn't, okay, have you, you know, they just wouldn't want to have anything to do with us. Oh, cool, so, you, so, you've, so you've approached them and asked them that. I guess is what that means. If you say that they, they don't want it, well, no, that's not the case, but we just, we just know, you know, because, you know, everybody kind of has their own thing and, and all that. Okay, so they're different. Okay, have you tried, like, opening your mind and maybe just finding a way to do something different? Well, that's just not really what we've ever done in everything. Okay, well, maybe what you've done is stupid. Or maybe what you've done is insufficient. Or maybe what you've done made all the sense in the world and was awesome and the perfect thing to do for, you know, 70 years, and maybe something changed. Maybe society changed. Maybe the makeup of the community changed. I don't know. The point is change happens. Our institutions are temporary. And so what it seems like happens is we start having more faith and more dedication in our institutions than we do in our calling. And when we do that, we start losing what's important, being a part of the body of Christ, which doesn't care about your church, doesn't care about your institution, and doesn't really care about your tradition. If we, it can use all those things in order to further its mission, its purpose, awesome. But if those things are going to get in the way, they need to be burned on the altar. So that's what we end up saying, you know, in so many different the so many different letters in the New Testament or, you know, different people getting hung up on the way that they do things and then Paul or the other apostles pointing out and saying, like, you're completely missing the point. It's not about the rituals and all that you do. It's about your relationship with God. It's about being willing to serve one another, to serve the body of Christ, because when you serve the body of Christ, the body of Christ, not the building of Christ, and not the house of Christ, and not the roof of Christ, or not the, not the tax entity of Christ, but when you support and serve the body of Christ, you support Christ himself, and you support the Father. 
That's how this whole thing works. And we've gotten it so wrong. And when I say we've gotten it wrong, I'm not just picking on the American church. We've been doing this for the greater part of 2,000 years. And so it's an old, old problem. We have our work cut out for us if we want to try to do it differently. But we have to understand that a key part of being a part of that body is our willingness to serve one another. And there are several different things that move us to want to serve one another. We don't just serve because it's something that's volunteering. That is the key thing that will always torque me off, is when I hear somebody say like, well, you know, it's just volunteering is really, really hard. When we're talking about church service. Because I have always taken the attitude, even if it means a severe amount of inconvenience or even something maybe just not working the way that we wanted it to work, rather than have somebody come up to me and say, you know what, I'm going to volunteer if you really need me to, you know, but I'll, 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 I'll do it. I'd rather you just not do it. Because as we covered like last week, God doesn't need your pity. He doesn't need your charity. I might really want it as like a pastor and our institution may want it. But once again, if this whole thing fails tomorrow, the calling of God is still the same and I'm still continuing serving Jesus wherever he's calling me. You know, and I would hope the same would be of, of, of all of you. That if, like, if this thing turns the wrong direction, I'm still going to serve Christ and that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to love people and so that, that, that's how we're going to do things. So that being said, we can't look at service. If we're going to look at the church and the body as serving one another, we can't look at it as just simply volunteering for 4-H or going and doing service hours for the Boys and Girls Club. Can you tell I don't have kids that do service hours? I don't even know the organizations here that you do that kind of thing with. <laughs> but it's not doing a favor for God. Instead, you're being driven by something that is bigger than just some like generic sense of civic duty. You're doing it because something is drawing you to want to serve one another. I would say this. When you have somebody in your family who needs something done, is the first thing you do to rush and to figure out how much you should charge them? Or do you sit there and go, after you get past the fact that, like, I don't want to spend my Saturday pulling weeds in your garden or whatever it is, like, you get past that, you just go, like, well, yeah, I'm going to help them out. So my family member, right? Like, there's somebody that I should be helping, so I'm going to go do that thing, you know? It's just, it's because I have this connection to them, Right? That's what serving in a family looks like. I'm not doing it because I'm clocking how many hours I did something for Meredith. Like I'm, I'm doing this because it's a relationship that we have and that's how relationships work is you do things for one another. And the first way that I see that we get driven into service is actually by the bond set. I was going to use that example. It's by service by affection. This is something that I feel like you can see when you see the... Uh, when you see the uh, miracle that occurs um, whenever the, the Jesus is speaking in a room and a bunch of the friends uh, lower an individual down through the, the ceiling, right? And if we, if we look at a part of this story in Mark 2, verses 1 through 5, we end up seeing this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, before I connect this, I, I don't want to go through and read the whole thing, but if you're reading this and, and, and you forget parts of the story or whatever, just so you know, these individuals didn't just like 
bring a guy who was paralyzed to Jesus and he said, your sins are forgiven and that's the end of the story. Like, is there, there's a bunch of outrage of other leaders in the room saying, how dare you, you know, say that sins are forgiven and then Jesus says, well, which one is harder? Saying your sins are forgiven or telling him to get up and walk? And he says, get up and walk. The guy gets up and walks. So he does heal him of his paralysis. I just want to point that out in case anybody looks at it and goes like, oh, that's kind of a weird, weird reaction by Christ. Um, but what I wanted to focus on is the support that the friends had for for their, 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 their fifth individual, the paralyzed man. You can see that there was something that was drawing them to want to take them to Jesus. You know, it, we focus on the paralyzed man because clearly there's miracles that's occurring and Jesus, like, that's who we're going to focus on. But think about the friends for a second, that they took this individual and they hauled him on a mat over to Jesus and then they got to the area and they realized they couldn't get in. Lesser individuals might have looked at that and said, well, I'm sorry, man, we can't get in. Or maybe, maybe we'll just do what a lot of other people do in the Bible. We'll wait for him where the exit is, and when he comes past, we'll try to get him then. They had so many other options of what they could have done, but instead, they looked at it and went, nope, we're going to get you to Jesus. And so they went up, and they, they, they went through the roof. And what is so kind of fascinating about this is that, like, the way a lot of the homes, you know, were kind of built and everything, where they kind of had like an upper room, and a lot of times the upper room had a separate way of getting up into it. It's kind of funny, because you picture all these people in the bottom room of like, picture it like a big garage almost, you know, so it's like a garage, and they're all sitting in there, and they're all packed in, and then the, the friends are coming over in the top, and you know, they would have had to have gone through since there would have been an upper room that applies a floor, right? So they would have had to go through the floor and get a hole in there, and you have to wonder what Jesus and all these people who were so, like, very white-collar religious leaders, you know, would have thought with, like, particles of ceiling coming in at them the whole time. And so you can see the sense of affection. There has to have been a sense of affection. How do you explain that any other way than these individuals loved their friend? And because of that, they wanted to do something for him. We don't see anything in this story that, and as a result, the paralyzed man, turns out, was like Elon Musk, and he gave him a whole bunch of money and everything, and then he ruined Twitter. Like, we don't see that anywhere in this story, and so the only thing that you really have to take away from it is that the friends loved the paralyzed one. And so they went and they served him. What I think strikes me about this story, and really so many of the others, but especially this one, is that once again, there were so many opportunities that these friends would have had to walk away. And when I think about what happens when we approach serving one another as a sense of volunteering, I think about exactly this. Because I've had a phrase that I've used it ever since I was working with teens, and I still use it today because it applies to adults too. If you really don't want to do something, there's always going to be a good reason not to do it. Uh, like there always is. So, so in other words, if what you're looking for, to, for somebody to convince you to go do something, is for them to address all of your reasons not to do it, it's never going to happen. You're always going to be able to have perfectly valid things to pop up and say, well, you know, blank, 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 and so I, that's really not, not good for me right now. That's really just hard for me right now. That's just not really where I am right now. You are always going to be able to make those things, those, those you know, kind of excuses and rationales and all that. And they're always going to be reasonable and rational. And so, what drives you to actually serve? It's not going to be somebody convincing you why all of your doubts are invalid. It's going to be because something is going to draw you to want to overcome those difficulties. And to say, I'm going to be willing to do the thing that is hard and difficult. Not because 
all of my doubts have been addressed, but because I feel there's something more important I need to do. I think about any time that like Brad has talked about going over and doing the missions in Africa, that I look at that and that doesn't sound like a fun, easy process. First of all, because I don't like needles and I don't want to get a bunch of shots. But, you know, then you look at like flying over there and like flying is awful, period. Flying for long periods of time is especially awful, especially if you've done it internationally. And then you do it to an airplane that is going into, this is going to get like subtly condescending to third world countries, okay? Then you're going to get on a plane that's going to pull into some like dirt farming country on what I assume they have to clear chickens off the runway before they land and everything. I know it's not that bad. And then, you know, it just, the whole thing sounds awful and I just don't want to do it. You know, but I look at that and I go, but despite that, these individuals who go, don't go and then say, man, this is awesome. <laughs> I love being on that plane for this long. Like, nobody has ever said that in the history of travel. So the only thing that's driving them is because there is a sense of, like, I have a love for these people, so I want to go. I want to serve these individuals because I have a sense of affection. So it's not that all of my concerns have been addressed because they absolutely have not. Maybe when I get there, I don't even know how certain things are going to happen. That's where God does the cool stuff. But when I am driven by my sense of affection, I'm willing to overcome my own concerns and my focus on myself in pursuit of helping another. That's the attitude that we want to have, and that's what we see Christ have. We can also see individuals who serve out of a sense of observation. So we're going to continue on with the very, you know, kind of commonly known biblical stories. When we think about the Good Samaritan, think about what that story is. Luke 10, verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going on the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told the expert, go and do likewise. There's a lot to unpack in this story. And, 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 and I have and I will. Because there's so much in this that makes this really a beautiful picture. But the aspect of it that I want to point out is the two individuals who arguably had the duty to actually reach out to the individual, a priest and a Levite, basically a, a church deacon. These individuals who you would have thought had something about them that they needed to help out, they didn't help out. But instead you see a Samaritan who had no obligation to help out and actually had the opposite, would have been dissuaded from helping out. He's the one who sees a need and he serves. So he didn't know this individual. He may have had this agape love for his fellow man, but I mean, he didn't, he didn't have that, like, that intimate affection that was drawing him to him. He simply saw a need and he helped. It's reminiscent of individuals who, you know, will sit here and talk about climbing mountains and do the whole life, why do you climb that mountain? And then, you know, the mountain climber will say, because it's there. That's exactly what we see is, you know, 
an example of where God has set up the divine appointment to be able to assist and serve another individual. And so you do it. Not necessarily because the individual reached out and gave you all the reasons why you should do it, and not necessarily because they begged you, and not because they provided the right incentives, but because I saw a need and I wanted to help, and so I did. Sometimes it's that simple. But once again, it overrides any other concern you may have. Any other concern that this Samaritan would have had. This Jew that doesn't may not like me. His family may not like me. I may not be able to recoup my expenses. No, none of those things that would have been perfectly valid complaints for him were brought up in this moment. Instead, I saw a need and I helped. I served individuals because I saw an opportunity to serve. And it was that simple. When you're not focused on yourself, that becomes a very compelling argument. Because you want to serve one another. The last thing that I want to bring up when it comes to this idea of serving one another is having a sense of dedication. Now, I didn't say obligation, but dedication. And dedication to the right thing. Dedication to a higher purpose and a higher calling. That in and of itself can drive us to want to serve. To proactively want to find opportunities to serve. Going into the Easter season, we're familiar with this. In Mark 15, verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passed by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Here's an individual who was traveling to Jerusalem, a Jew from Cyrene, who was there for Passover in Jerusalem, seeing the crucifixion of Christ. So he's there for Passover. We have no idea if he was a follower of the way. It would have been very difficult to think that he was necessarily proactively a disciple of Christ at this point because he's from Cyrene, which is like Libya. So he is way far away from where Jesus ever was during his lifetime. And yet, he is in this place where there's a calling that is kind of thrust upon him and he does it. And what's interesting, just in this one verse here, is as a Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. It calls that out because Simon and his sons would end up becoming a significant part of the creation of the early church. And it starts with a sense of dedication. Not because he knew somebody and so I'm going to go help out my buddy. And not even necessarily because I saw a need, so I reached out and proactively helped. But because the opportunity, and maybe even the calling compelled him to do it. That there was a sense of dedication that was thrust upon him. And so on this, what I would bring up is that sometimes a sense of service isn't something that we elect to have. It's not something that we purchase from the universe with our goodwill. Sometimes the opportunity and the calling to serve is something that is laid on our shoulders. And when that happens, that's when it becomes so easy to pop up with every reason why we shouldn't do it or why it's not right for us. But when that happens, we have to have the discernment and the wisdom. And most importantly, we have to have the humility to understand that our own comfort is not the priority. That even though Christ will carry our burdens with us, what that means is that sometimes we're still carrying part of the cross. It's just Christ is carrying the harder part. And so as we sit here and we think about our sense of service with the church, whether that means the corporate church, the institution of the church, whether that means serving one another, the church in our lives, and our household, we need to not neglect the fact that service is a key part of having something that is healthy and that is more 
than just a steeple and bells and an organ and a program and everything else we think of as a part of church. Our willingness to serve one another is key to our attitude we have to not focus on ourselves and instead to focus on God and to focus on other people. The most important thing that we can possibly do as Christians is adopt an attitude and a mindset that instead says, I am willing and even excited to put my own comfort and convenience aside so that I can serve another individual and provide them just a little bit of comfort and relief. If we adopt that mindset as individuals, as family households, and as a church family, then I think it will be amazing seeing the amount of peace and the sense of contentment and purpose that Christ gives us. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about all the different ways that, that you, you, you show us service, that you show us opportunities to be able to service, we, we pray that you would give us a heart that is, that is humble and that is willing and that is able to kind of see past all of our own inconveniences and the things that may hold us back. Help us to be proactive even in wanting to find ways that we can serve you. Help us to be able to draw that connection in our mind of helping others with being a part of your body so that we may serve in a way that we're not just doing it because it's drudgery or because we think it's what we have to do or because it's we're doing you a favor, but help us have the attitude that we're doing it because we love you and in order to show you that we love you, we want to love one another. Help us to be able to do it when it's inconvenient. Help us to be able to do it when it's easy. Help us to be able to do it when it looks like somebody else may already be able to do it, but we have the, 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 the opportunity. God, we just pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to look past ourselves and instead are intently willing to look at you and look at what you have willed for us to do. Help us to understand, help us to listen, help us to be discerning, and help us to be a family. We pray these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.